Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. Bill Creasy here. Welcome back to Scripture Uncovered. In the wake of Easter in last week's podcast, we explored Judas and his betrayal of Jesus. And we looked especially at what his motives may have been, and we uncovered some really intriguing possibilities. This week, I'd like to turn to St. Peter. Now, Peter is the apostle, the leader of the Twelve, and the one upon whom Jesus said he would build his church, the one to whom Jesus handed the keys to the kingdom. And yet, at the critical moment, Peter denied Jesus, not once, but three times. So why did Peter do it? And what were his motives? And what were the consequences of Peter's denial? Judas, after all, went out and hanged himself. But what about Peter? Now, as many of you know, I'm on Relevant Radio each Friday evening from 6 to 7 Pacific Time on The Joe Socorro Show. I met Joe way back in the 1990s when he was a student in my five-year verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible at St. Monica's Parish in Santa Monica, California. Joe is a really interesting guy. A former movie stuntman, a Santa Monica cop, and a licensed marriage and family therapist. Joe has been on Immaculate Heart Radio, now Relevant Radio, broadcasting nationwide Monday through Friday from 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific Time. And Joe's program is about relationships. Relationships in a Christian context. Dating relationships, marriage relationships, friendships, and so on. Now, I'm really blessed to be a part of Joe's program. Every Friday, Joe and I spend the first four hours of the program talking about the scripture readings for the upcoming Sunday Mass and we take call-in questions about Scripture. (laughs) Joe calls it his Stump the Professor segment. Last Friday, in the second hour of his program, Joe's relationship topic was regret. Why we have it, what we can do about it, and how we can avoid it. And that's what got me thinking about Peter. Boy, talk about regret. Let's have a look at the story in Luke 22, verses 54 to 65. Jesus and his disciples have gone to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is arrested. Judas leads the temple guards, and they take hold of Jesus. Now, Peter said he would never, ever betray Christ. He would never deny him. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter proves it. Because when they took hold of Jesus, Peter drew a sword and lopped off the ear of a servant of the high priest, a man named Malchus. Peter offered his life. He would have been killed had not Jesus intervened. But they take Jesus off. We read, beginning in verse 54, Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. That would be Caiaphas. Peter followed at a distance, in the shadows. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard of the high priest and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. 
Now, when Peter gets to the courtyard of the high priest, we read in the Gospel according to John that John knew the servant of the high priest, and he's the one who got Peter into the courtyard. But once in the courtyard, the gate is locked and Peter is trapped inside. So he sat down with them, not warming his hands around the fire, but in the darkest corner he could find. A servant girl saw him seated there, and she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But Peter denied it, looking at the ground. A woman, I, I, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else asked him. They saw him and they said, no, you're one of them. I am not, Peter replied. Now, importantly, about an hour later, so Peter is trapped in that courtyard with the temple guards and the domestic servants from inside the house. About an hour later, another said, no, this, this fellow was with him. He's a Galilean. I can tell by that northern accent, that Galilean accent. And Peter replied, I don't know what you're talking about. And as he was saying it, the door of the house opened, Jesus was being led out, the cock crowed all simultaneously, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. They locked eyes. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had said, before the rooster crows today, you'll dis disown me three times. All of those things happen simultaneously. And as the gate is open, Peter rushes out. And we read in Luke that he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter is crushed. Crushed. Well, of course, they lead Jesus off. They take him to Pilate. He's sentenced to death to be crucified. And we know the story of the Passion. We talked about it in the last couple of podcasts. Jesus is crucified. At the foot of the cross was John, Jesus' mother Mary, John's mother, Mary Magdalene. But where was Peter? I can't imagine he left town. No, he was there in the shadows, sobbing, weeping bitterly. Peter had done something that he never imagined that he would do. He denied his Lord, not once, but three times. What do we do with Peter? After Jesus' resurrection, we read that he appeared to Peter first and then to the others. Now he appeared to Mary Magdalene, who then went and told the others. But he appeared to Peter first. We have no information on what they talked about. But we can only imagine Peter ashamed, regretful, a, a, a devastated person. And I like to imagine that Jesus said to him, Peter, it's okay. You were afraid. You were afraid in the courtyard of the high priest. I know that. At the Garden of Gethsemane, God knows I was afraid. I was terrified. I was sweating blood. You were afraid. It's okay. I forgive you. 
But the issue is not Jesus forgiving Peter. It's Peter forgiving Peter. Regret, guilt, denial. Peter can't forgive Peter. Later, up on the Sea of Galilee, Peter said, I'm done. There's nothing in this for me anymore. I denied him. And they went out to fish. Others went with him. They were worried about Peter. They were afraid. And they caught 153 fish, a huge number of fish. After they came back to the shore, there was Jesus cooking some fish, making them breakfast. Peter was there. I don't think he ate much, maybe picked at his fish. And when they were all finished, Jesus looked at Peter and said, come on, Peter, let's go for a walk. And they do. They walk around the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as they walk, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Gesturing to the other apostles on the shore. Do you truly love me more than these? The Greek word for love is agapeo. That is the love that God has for us. The love that Jesus said we're to have for one another. A totally selfless, giving love. Do you truly love me more than the others do? And Peter replied, Lord, you know that I love you. Now in our English translation, the word is love, but the Greek word is phileo. Phileo, it means friendship. It's not agapeo, it's friendship. In other words, Jesus said, Peter, do you truly love me more than these? And Peter said, Lord, you know I couldn't live up to that. You know I failed at that, but you're my friend. They went a little further. And Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Again, using the word agapeo. And notice that he dropped more than these. Forget them, Peter. Let's focus on you. Do you truly agapeo, love me? Peter said again, Lord, you know I phileo you. You know I'm your friend. And, and I can't help but think that Peter's eyes well up with tears. You know I failed at that. But you have to know you're my friend. Well, they walked a little further, and the third time Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This time, Jesus drops agapeo and uses phileo. Are you my friend? Peter was hurt, heartbroken, because the third time Jesus said, do you phileo me? Are you my friend? It's not that Jesus made him say it three times because Peter denied him three times. That's silly. No. Jesus questions even the friendship. At which point, Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo. You know that I love you. You know you're my friend. And Jesus said, in effect, good, 
Let's start there and we'll work from that point. Feed my sheep. That is, take care of the other guys. I placed you in charge of the 12. Yes, you failed. And yes, you denied me. You have felt a terrible guilt and a deep regret. But now, we'll start where you are, Peter. But you gotta take care of the guys. We often think of Jesus reinstating Peter in this chapter, and indeed he does. But he teaches Peter a very important lesson about love. We can't command love, but we can take a relationship where it is and move it to love. Did it work with Peter? It sure did. Over in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, Peter is writing to all of us, and he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. And above all, love each other deeply. And the word Peter uses is agapeo. Love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And boy, Peter is the one who really, really knew that. I'd like to add a personal note here. My friend and radio colleague, Joe Sakura, and his wife, Lori, have two sons, John and Ben, both of whom were diagnosed at a very young age with Batten disease. That's a progressive, always fatal childhood disease. Among the cruelest of all maladies, it robs an otherwise healthy, vibrant child of their sight, their vitality, and finally, of their life. Joe's son, John, died when he was 24. Ben, who's three years younger than John, is still alive, although in the latter stages of this terrible disease. Joe has written a profoundly moving book about his family's journey through unimaginable pain, despair, and anguish coping with this dreaded illness. His book is called Defying Gravity, How Choosing Joy Lifted My Family from Death to Life. It's published by Ignatius Press, and it's well worth the read. But have a box of Kleenex handy when you do. You can order it on Amazon.com, and I encourage you to do so. Joe is a great friend and a great man and his wife is lovely. Pray for them, if you will. Thank you. You're listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, back to the program. Here's Dr. Creasy. Well, welcome back to Scripture Uncovered. We're now moving into our question and answer segment. And the first question we have is from Tom E. And Tom writes, I'm a parishioner at Mission San Diego, and I have two boys. My youngest son, who's gone to Nazareth school from preschool through eighth grade, is now in high school. And he says evolution makes more sense to him than people all coming from the same two people, Adam and Eve. So how would you explain Adam and Eve versus evolution to him? And thank you, I love your classes. 
Well, thank you for loving the classes, Tom, and thank you for the question. Adam and Eve versus evolution. Now, we've, ta we've talked about this in earlier podcasts, but in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, we might classify those chapters as mythopoeic literature. That is, stories that address the fundamental issues of the human condition. Issues like, where did we come from? How did we get here? Why are we here? These big, big questions. So when we read the story of creation, really two stories in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, two stories, the first of which traces out seven days or seven periods, seven epochs of time during which God creates all that is. On the sixth day of creation, each of those days moving toward completion and perfection, on the sixth day, he creates humanity, male and female. And then on the seventh day, God rests. We then move into Genesis chapter 2 in what's often called the second creation story. And in that story, from a literary perspective, we turn around, drop down into day six, and we watch how God created humanity. He creates Adam from the dust of the earth and forms him into a person, into a man, masculine, male. And he loves this creature, loves him to pieces. And God is in the garden with him in, a, in an intimate uh, environment where he loves the man and the man loves him. And God's watching this man, Adam, work in the garden. And God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. And I'm always struck by that because apparently Adam had no problem with it. He was thinking to himself, you know, I'll finish up out here trimming the rose bushes, then I'll go in, have a beer, and watch a game. Life is good. God said, no, this is not good. I will make a suitable partner for him. And God makes from Adam Eve, from the side of Adam. Not a rib, but a side of Adam. And the two are together in perfect unity with one another and with God. That's our creation story. Every ancient culture has a creation story. It's one variation or another on the same thing. They're stories that address fundamental issues of the human condition. Now, turn to evolution. We read of the Big Bang. I like to think of that. Imagine all the mass in the universe, in the entire infinite universe, squeezed into the size of a pinpoint. And suddenly, boom, it explodes. Light flashes outward. And I like to imagine that being God saying, let there be light. And the process begins. You know, science and religion are not in opposition. Science and religion speak of the very same things, but they use two different languages. Religion uses story. Religion addresses the fundamental issues of the human condition through story in this genre of literature, mythopoeic 
literature. Now the Bible has many different genres of literature, mythopoeic literature as in Genesis 1 through 11, uh, history as in 1st and 2nd Kings, poetry as in the Psalms, uh, letters and epistles, uh, many different genres. So as educated readers of scripture, our job is to understand the genre of literature that we're reading and the literary conventions that genre uses, and then address the issues from that perspective within its own time in history and within its own culture. So how to explain it to a high school student? Well, I would start off by saying that religion and science are speaking of the very same things, just in two different languages. One in the language of story, the other in the language of math and physics. And I think that will do the job. Now, let's move to question two. This question is from Brett S. And Brett writes, do you believe that non-believers who die are given an opportunity to accept Christ and to find salvation? Is this what the church means by purgatory? Well, we really have two questions here. Let me address the first part. Do you believe that non-believers who die are given an opportunity to accept Christ and to find salvation? I think it's pretty clear from Scripture that we're all born into this world in a condition of sin, a condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in our outward sinful action. That's our state. That's our condition. And barring the radical intervention of God's grace, that's where we'll stay until we step out of this world into eternity, living apart from God. However, by virtue of who Christ is and what he did on the cross on our behalf, he enabled our salvation. God provides the grace that enables us, living in the world, to respond to him in faith. And when we do, we take hold of God and we step into the family of God. We move positionally from the world into the family of God. And once in the family of God, we get there by grace through faith. But once there, we then live out our faith in a life of active love or a life of good works. You know, this whole bugaboo about the conflict between faith and works, it's a non-issue. We get into the family of God by grace through faith. We live in the family of God by a life of active love, all of which is enabled by who Christ is and what he did on that cross. Because he took our sin on himself and paid the penalty for that sin before holy and righteous God, God therefore provides the grace that enables us to respond. But there are people who say no. You know, the big risk and we see this in the story of Adam and Eve as well. Adam and Eve had a perfect environment. They had a perfect intimate relationship with God. And yet they chose to turn their backs on God and walk away. God created each and every one of us with the freedom to choose to love him or not. And if we choose not, then God will grant us what we wish. Heaven is not a reward for good behavior, nor is hell a punishment for bad behavior. Heaven and hell are a choice, a choice to 
respond to God's grace and to step into the family of God and live a life as a son or a daughter of God, as a brother or sister of Christ, or to turn our backs and walk away. And if we choose definitively, right up until the last moment, adamantly rejecting that offer, then God will respect our choice. He will allow us to walk away and to live eternity without him, apart from him. You know, it was John Donne in a sermon that he preached in 1622 who said, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but to fall out of the hands of the living God is a horror beyond our imagination. That's what we know. What we don't know is who is saved and who's not. Because frankly, that's way above our pay grade. Out there in eternity, will people have a second chance? I don't know, frankly. Perhaps. Perhaps the love of God ultimately will be all in all. But that's way beyond anything that we're given insight into. Now, the second part of the question about purgatory, uh, no, uh, none of this has anything to do with purgatory. Purgatory, that's from the word of the Latin word purgation, you know, to, to purge. And, and I like to illustrate purgatory with the story of the prodigal son. You know, the prodigal son was the son of the father who chose to walk away from the father. And he did. And he went off, he took his inheritance, he went off, he spent the whole thing, and, and then came to his senses. He was living in a pig pen, for Pete's sakes. He was feeding pig slop to the pigs and eating it himself. And he thought to himself, what am I doing? I, I, I want to go home. I want to go back to my father. So he got out of that pig pen and he headed home. And where was the father? Watching out the window, waiting for his son. He knew his son would return because it's his son. He's not a pig. He's a son. And when the son came walking up the road, what did the father do? He ran out to greet him and embraced him. The boy smelled like a pig. He was filthy. And yet the father embraced him and threw a big party. But notice in the story, before the big party, he cleaned up his son. He gave him a new set of clothes, a ring on his finger. Because after all, if you've been living in the pig pen, you don't want to go into the father's house smelling like a pig. So I think in that sense, that's purgatory. It's a time where although we are sons and daughters of God, although we are adopted into the family of God, we've walked through this world and we've gotten pretty dirty along the way. And we can confess our sins, our sins are forgiven, but yet deep within us, we still feel the effect of them. We still feel the, the guilt, the remorse. I like to think of purgatory much as Dante did in the Divine Comedy, as a school for love. It's a time that we're given to truly come to understand our relationship with God and to be cleansed of all the junk that we picked up along the way in our pilgrimage of life. Thank you for joining me here on Scripture Uncovered. Look forward to seeing you next week. Have a blessed week. Keep us in your prayers and keep Joe and his family in your prayers as well. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. So go to scriptureuncovered.com and submit your questions. Dr. Creasy might answer them on air. 
That's scriptureuncovered.com. Submit your questions. And also, if you have a moment, leave us a rating and review in iTunes or wherever you're accessing the podcast. This is the best way to help us spread the word about Logos Bible Study and about Scripture Uncovered. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.